I'm Khalil A. Colonna, and this is Nashville. Last year's decision by the Supreme Court to overturn Roe v. Wade sent shockwaves throughout the country. Here in Tennessee, abortions are banned, with no exceptions. That means pregnant Tennesseans seeking abortions have to leave the state to get the medical care they need. But traveling isn't free, and many people lack the time and resources. That's where abortion funds come in. What's life like for pregnant people trying to navigate this new reality? What organizations are offering help? And how are they doing it now? Today, we'll talk about the new reality of abortion access in Tennessee. But first, the Tennessee Valley Authority has announced it will move forward with plans to converting a coal plant 70 miles outside of Nashville into a natural gas facility. The move was expected, but TVA had been under pressure to consider renewable alternatives instead. Here to explain the latest is WPLN environmental reporter, Caroline Eggers. Caroline, thanks for being here. Hey, glad to be here. Glad to have you with us. So catch us up, Caroline. What is TVA proposing to do with their Cumberland coal plant? So TVA wants to build a big new natural gas plant on this old coal site near Clarksville. That will also require them to build a 32-mile gas pipeline so it can connect to other gas pipelines. Did this come as a surprise? So this has been in the works for at least a couple of years. TVA got into an agreement with a pipeline co- company for this project way back in the summer of 2021. Hmm. And they didn't actually officially propose this gas project until the summer of 2022. So no, not exactly a surprise. You, you may have heard people say that TVA is going all in on gas. Mm-hmm. And if you look at the numbers, this is very true. Um, TVA already gets about 30% of their energy from gas, and they have three other gas projects currently in the works being built, and they're expected to build to propose yet another gas plant this year. Hmm. You reported that this decision was made by TVA's CEO, Jeff Lyash, not by its nine-member board. That's a bit unusual, right? Uh, Yes. um, It's very unusual to give this power to a single person. Mm. In other states, we have public utility commissions that oversee these decisions. Um, But here in Tennessee, we're just an anomaly of this, like we're a government-owned utility, and we have a president-appointed board to oversee decisions. Um, But in 2021, the board, which was then Trump members only, voted to give the CEO this power. And this was very controversial because at the time, um, Biden's nominees to the boards were just sitting unconfirmed by the Senate. They were only confirmed um, last month, actually. They, They waited a very long time. So it's thought that the only reason that they would give Lyash this power was to prevent any new board members from changing the outcome of this decision. You you know, but now that President Biden has selected a majority of the appointees on the board, was there any concern that this decision was reached before they could weigh in? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, really, the CEO voting this week really just affirms that TBA didn't want this extra oversight. Mm. Now— You know, I'm sure that there are listeners who may hear natural gas and don't fully understand why that concerns stakeholders. Or they may think, surely it must be better than coal. Why is this thinking problematic? 
Yeah. So saying that gas is environmentally better than coal is, you know, not a very good argument for gas Mm -hmm. because renewable energy is much better for the environment than gas, right? So utilities and fossil fuel companies will tell you that, you know, you burn gas at a plant and it has less emissions than coal. But what it's leaving out is that there has to be drilling for that gas, which that usually means fracking. Then you have to send the gas through pipelines. And at the end of the day, they're still burning a fossil fuel. And what's being released is warming our planet. Mm. Well, what did TVA use as its justification for going with a gas plant? So TVA says this was about cost and reliability. So on the cost side, it was interesting. They, they have this 1,600-page review, 1600 review, you know, detailing why they were going to pick the gas plant. And they actually don't tell you what the expected cost for that gas plant will be hmm. or what the expected gas plants for solar will be. So there was very little transparency on the cost side, and that idea is being challenged right now. Then they also said, you know, oh, gas is reliable. Well, that's really in question right now because just a few weeks ago, we had gas failures that helped lead to these rolling blackouts that TVA ordered. What alternatives did they overlook? Um, well, really, TVA had a lot of options. and But if you look around the country and around the world, I mean, really, they should have looked at wind and solar with batteries. Now, you've been holding a spotlight on the TVA's recent decisions. What's next? Yeah, well, goodness, there's always a lot more. Um, but I guess... Um, Up next will be that uh, TVA just asked our state environmental agency to, um, they asked her for their permission to dump more pollution into a river from one of its coal plants in East Tennessee. And I will be listening into a meeting on Thursday about this, and I'll be sure to share what I learned. Caroline Eggers is WPLN's environmental reporter. You can find her latest at WPLN.org. Caroline, thanks for joining us, and as always, Thanks for your reporting. Sure. Thank you. We have to take a short break. When we come back, we'll learn what life is like right now for people seeking abortion care under Tennessee's total ban. Have you sought abortion care since the Dobbs decision? Tweet us at This Is Nashville. We'll be right back. Khalil A. Colonna, and this is Nashville. Since Tennessee's total ban on abortions went into effect last year, many pregnant people seeking abortions have had to leave the state in order to get the medical care they need. For others, the time and expense of traveling have made it this all but impossible. Abortion funds work to overcome these financial and logistical barriers. And after the Dobbs decision last year, these funds saw a deluge of donations. Even so, the process of seeking an abortion can be daunting, even with support and resources. My next guest knows this firsthand. She recently traveled out of state to get an abortion. Hannah, thank you for being with us and welcome to This Is Nashville. Hi, thanks for having me. Really appreciate you being here. And a quick note for listeners, we're using your first name only to protect your privacy. So, you know, Hannah, let me ask you, 
How are you? How are you doing today? I'm I'm good. I I'm looking forward to chatting. Really? So, thanks. <laughs> Again, really appreciate you being here and sharing your story with us. So, yeah, you know, how did you react when you found out that you were pregnant? Yeah, so um, definitely unexpected. Um, and just to kind of give some background, so this fall, um, me and my um, you know committed partner, um, we used protection, um, and it failed. And of course, kind of my next step is being somebody who is not interested in being pregnant at the time, um, went the next morning to get a plan B, took that, but yet still two weeks later found out I was pregnant. Mm. <laughs> um, so very surprising, first of all, just that it could have happened given my, my attempt at intervention <laughs> on that. Um, so definitely a couple weeks of kind of just shock and trying to figure out what I wanted to do. So tell me, how did you make the decision to have an abortion? Yeah. So, um, you know, I think I definitely have been, um, very pro-choice with, and very devastated by the recent change in legislator that prevents access. But I think from a personal standpoint, I thought that if I did all the right things and was careful and acted responsible, I would never have to make the decision myself. Mm -hmm. Um, so I think I was very caught off guard by the fact that I felt like I was doing the things that you're supposed to do in order to prevent it. Um, and it still happened. Um, so I think the first, I took about three weeks to decide. So I ended up traveling out of state my seventh week, um, and getting an abortion, a medical abortion, now, um, actually in Virginia. So now did you reach out to any organizations for help during that time? Yeah, I did. Um, I called all options hotline. Um, I believe, I don't know if, I don't think they're directly affiliated with like Planned Parenthood, but they are a nonprofit and they provide resources to people considering abortion, people that are wanting to get pregnant, but can't people that have adopted people that have just had a baby and are struggling. And they were a wonderful resource, had two conversations with two different people that just sort of helped me think through my decision and ultimately just really made me feel like I wasn't a bad person for considering it and really just helping me stay grounded in, um, you know, my choice without kind of all this outside noise intervening. So it was, it was wonderful. And I recommend them to anybody considering it. You're talking about the all options pregnancy resource center. The hotline number that they have is 888-493-0092. Again, that's 888-493-0092. So, you know, when you called, what did they say to you exactly that really helped you make your decision? Yeah, so I think kind of just what I'm telling you, I mean, I think I told them my story and I said, hey, look, I didn't want to get pregnant at this time. Um, I tried to intervene. I tried not to get pregnant as much as I could. Um, but did I get pregnant for a reason? Is it meant to happen? And, you know, they really helped me see that my I was already attempting to not get pregnant. And so I had already sort of made a decision to prevent it, mm. kind of indicating what I truly wanted, which was not to be pregnant. Mm -hmm. um, and they just, I mean, I think there's just so much shame that can go along with, with the decision. I mean, even if you have such a supportive community and a supportive partner, um, you know, the societal shame of it, especially living in a state where you know you're going to have to go out of state to get it. 
it's just, it was very daunting. It was very daunting. Now, did you have that support from your community, family, and your partner? Yes, very. I mean, I'm in the world of like accidentally getting pregnant and needing an abortion out of state. I'm incredibly lucky. I had, I have a very supportive partner who very, you know, helpful throughout the whole thing. My family was very supportive, friends. Um, I have the resources, financial transportation resources to get me to where I needed to go. Um, and it still, it still was terrible. So, I mean, I'm, I'm incredibly lucky I had those resources and it really made me very aware of how privileged I was in that case, but so many people aren't. Mm. And, um, especially just considering as somebody who never thought she'd be in this position, um, it just made me very even more empathetic towards anybody that finds themselves having to make the decision because it's not, it's not a pleasant one mm -hmm. <laughs> to go through sure. even under ideal circumstances. Mm -hmm. Now you, you mentioned that you went to Virginia to get an abortion. Yes. Talk to me about the type of arrangements you had to make. Um, so of course, um, with, you know, kind of an early term medical abortion, um, you know, you take pills. So there's going to be some downtime with that. So I had to take two days off of work. Um, you know, it was about two hour drive to Virginia to get the procedure. Um, so, you know, but it really, I mean, for those like who rely on the steady income or, you know, hourly position, I mean, it took me out for about four days, um, where I really couldn't do much. I couldn't leave my house hardly. Um, so kind of resources there, the, the procedure cost about 550, if I'm remembering, maybe five, 550, something like that. Um, and that's all out of pocket. So, you know, insurance and stuff, of course, doesn't cover that. Mm -hmm. So kind of a big cash burden up front and then time and, um, anxiety, of course, just mental load, you know, thinking through it. How was your experience at the clinic? Oh, they were amazing. I mean, they were amazing. Um, I think it, I spent about a week kind of leading up to the procedure being terrified. Um, they did a really good job kind of onboarding expectations. So they gave me a heads up that because of how close the clinic was to Tennessee state board or the state line, they had significant amounts of protesters typically. So um, they had, escort. they told me, you know, they had escorts outside kind of waiting to walk you in. But they did say, you know, sometimes the protesters like throw things, they take mm -hmm. your picture. Um, so they recommended like bringing an umbrella with you to kind of shield yourself. And that visualization just kind of undid me a little bit. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, but kind of getting there, you know, I pull up, we pull up into the clinic and there's like six people waiting outside that are not protesters that are part of the clinic volunteers that are just there to support you and just like give you encouragement. And tell you everything's okay. And then you go into the clinic and it's just, they're just lovely. Like they're so supportive. They're encouraging, you know, they give you reassurance that, you know, you are, you know, we're here for you, whatever choice you want to make. Um, it's, you know, your decision, um, just very professional and kind, just the utmost kindest kindness I've ever experienced, I think in my life. Mm. So I will always, I will always be grateful to that clinic, like my whole life. 
If you're just tuning in, this is Nashville, and I'm your host, Khalil A. Colonna. We're talking this hour about the new reality of receiving abortion care in Tennessee now that the total ban is in place. If you're listening and you have a story you want to share about seeking abortion care, we want to hear from you. Tweet us at This Is Nashville. I'd like to welcome my next guest. Robin Baldridge is the president of Abortion Care for Tennessee, a statewide abortion fund. Robin, thanks for being here, and welcome back to This Is Nashville. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for having us back on. Really appreciate you being here. Now, Robin, Hannah was able to afford this trip out of state to get abortion care, but we know that's not everyone's story. So how does Abortion Care Tennessee help pregnant people connect with care? Yes. So I want to uplift that, you know, ACT has been, ACT, ACT, Abortion Care Tennessee, whatever, however you want to refer to us. We have been operating since 2019 because already the cost of just accessing an abortion within the state of Tennessee was inaccessible for the majority of patients attempting to access it. And so we funded directly to clinics within Tennessee um, via block grants. So anytime a patient was coming in and they needed help coming up with money for the procedure, they would have a grant from us to help them access however much they needed to help them cover the cost. Now with those costs increasing because of what we call practical support necessary, which means they're going to need to access the travel to get there. They're going to need potentially childcare, time off work, medication, depending on what the patient needs. So the way we are operating now is that we still fund via block grants to clinics um, in neighboring states outside of Tennessee with those funds being earmarked for Tennessee patients. Mm -hmm. And many of those clinics also do have practical support networks in place so they can use, utilize our block grant for anything the patient needs, um, whether it's also offering them a gas card to help get there or just anything associated with these mounting costs now that uh, Tennessee patients have to travel out of state for care. How many people have you been able to help? It's really hard for us to specifically know that number just because we do keep really specific data from clinics, but at the same time, abortion clinics are really overwhelmed. They always have been, and they are even more so now. So we do sometimes that, you know, they're offering a, a patient just needs like $10 to cover the remainder of their procedure. And I can see why that doesn't necessarily make it onto the data sheet, but we have since the the Supreme Court leak and the overturning of Roe v. Wade, we have not had to turn away one clinic request. We have not had to turn away one patient. Um, it's right now the the numbers are in the hundreds of thousands as far as how much money that we've offered. And mm -hmm. we're well into like over a thousand patients uh, as far as like who we've helped. Have you seen the workload there at ACT increase since the Dobbs decision? Oh yeah, um, increase would be an understatement. Um, we were we were a fairly small operation. We were kind of the new guy in town ahead of the Supreme Court leak, and we were really still working to get our name out into the community. We actually had our first in person. You know, we launched like really during COVID, and so we had our first um, or COVID quarantine to clarify our first in-person fundraiser three days before the Supreme Court leak. Mm. And so we were just kind of starting to get the exposure necessary um, that we were planning on, you know, years of work to, to get more exposure into the community. And then 
because we had worked so hard to get our name out there ahead of the Supreme Court leak, there was a resource to point to when a large group of people, not just within Tennessee, but with, all over the country, um, became really energized to give back to this cause. And there was, you know, they found Abortion Care Tennessee. And so we really blew up what feels like overnight. And we went viral in the nonprofit world, whatever that the version of viral in the nonprofit world would be. Mm -hmm. And, you know, to say it quadrupled, tripled, it's like that times a million, all all, mostly all good stuff. Um, But we definitely were shocked by like the increased workload. Now, Hannah, now that you have gone through this process, what do you want people to know about abortion access? Just how inequitable it is right now um that that abortion access is really only available i mean even in states where it's legal to folks who can afford it and who can get and have transportation to find it um and that has probably always likely been the case but it has just been exasperated more with um you know the states that have decided not to have any sort of abortion access in the state um, so we're just going to need to be very supportive of of those that need the need the help and find themselves in the spot where they're having to make that difficult decision. What do you think people misunderstand about the process and, you know, what this is really like for people needing care? I, I think there's just so much judgment for the people that find themselves in the position that they have to make the decision in the first place. I mean, even me, who is, again, like I said, I was pro pro-choice, but... Um, I never thought that I'd be in that spot. So I think, again, it kind of goes back to even if somebody acts the way, the exact way that they should be, and they should not, they don't make any mistakes along the way, they can still find themselves having to confront this decision or being with somebody that has to make this, this, this hard decision. Um, and just having empathy for that and knowing lots of people find themselves in the spot despite things that they could or could have not done. And it's just important that the that access is provided to everybody, despite any personal choice that they would have made to get there. Mm-hmm. For any person, pregnant person out there who may be considering seeking an abortion care, I'm curious, what advice do you have for them? Especially if they don't necessarily have the support network around them, I would recommend calling the all options line um, to kind of just have a sympathetic ear to to talk the th- it through um like i said it's it was a great line the people that work um on the other side are just they don't you know ultimately care what decision you make they don't have any skin in the game on that they just want to support the person on the other end of the call um and that's that comes through the how how kind they are in the phone and and kind of the words of wisdom they provide so i would recommend starting there if anybody needs support or just a place to start. And that number for the All Options Pregnancy Resource Center is 888-493-0092. Again, 888-493-0092. Well, Hannah, I want to thank you for joining us today and thank you again for sharing your experience. Thanks for having me. Robin Baldridge of Abortion Care Tennessee is going to stay with us through the break. 
When we come back, we'll talk about the larger landscape of abortion care in Tennessee and what that looks like since the Dobbs decision. Share your experience or send in your questions by tweeting us at This Is Nashville. We'll be right back. Khalil A. Colonna, and this is Nashville. We've been talking this hour about the realities that pregnant people seeking abortion access are facing now that Tennessee's ban on abortions is in full effect. Before the break, we heard from someone who had to leave the state to get the care they needed. Now, let's look at the wider abortion landscape in Tennessee. I'd like to welcome my guests, maternal fetal medicine physician, Dr. Lisa Zuckerweiss and Jennifer Pepper, president and CEO of Choices Centers for Reproductive Health. Thank you both for joining us and welcome to This is Nashville. Thank you for having us, Kalia. Appreciate you both being here. Robin Baldridge, president of Abortion Care for Tennessee is still with us. Robin, thanks again for you being here. Thank you. Listeners, join the conversation and tweet us your questions at This Is Nashville. Now, before the break, we heard Hannah's story of traveling out of state for an abortion. Jennifer, Choices location in Carbondale, Illinois, is the closest abortion clinic to Nashville. Are you seeing a lot of patients who are traveling long distances to get to you? Yeah, I think the truth of the matter is patients have always had to travel to access abortion care, unfortunately, especially in the South. And what we're seeing at our clinic in Carbondale is that we're serving the same patients that we have served for almost five decades, folks from Tennessee, Arkansas, and Mississippi. We're, of course, seeing patients from other states as well. Um, but really, the the folks that are ended up in Carbondale to see us are the same Mid-South patients that we've taken care of for years, and they're having to travel even further to access that care. What's, what is the farthest the patient has traveled for care at your clinic? We've had a patient come to Carbondale that was from the western side of Texas. Uh, I mm. think that probably qualifies as the, the furthest distance. Um, we had started to see a lot of patients out of Texas in our Memphis clinic when abortion was still legal here in the state of Tennessee after SB8 went into effect in Texas. Um, and so, you know, but the truth of the matter is even before the Dobbs decision, patients were traveling hundreds of miles sometimes to access abortion care. And so that hasn't changed. It's only been exacerbated since the Dobbs decision. You know, paint the picture for me. What is it like providing care in this new reality we're facing? Well, it's an honor and a privilege to be able to take care of our patients and to continue to take care of them in the way that we have for so many years. It can, it's also difficult at times and, and heart-wrenching. Um, people have experienced a lot of barriers to accessing care. Our uh, brave uh, panelist, Hannah, talked about earlier. I'm so thankful for folks like Hannah that are willing to share their stories around accessing abortion care. Uh, but it's all the things that that you think of. It's travel, it's childcare, loss of wages, um, just availability of appointments. So there are fewer clinics in the U.S. and there are 
still about the same number of patients needing to access care. And that is just a math problem that doesn't work out in favor of patient access at some point, because providers are still just normal human beings with 24 hours in the day and seven days in their week. So wait times have also increased pretty significantly for patients across the country. How have you adapted the services you provide for the folks that you're helping? We Choices has always been a very patient-centered model of care, and for some years now, we have had folks on staff that work with patients and work with the abortion funds like Abortion Care Tennessee to make sure that patients get all of the support and resources they need to access care. So we have certainly increased those efforts, and we have wonderfully seen lots of folks step in with really generous support so that we can provide more and more of that support to our patients and to help connect them with good folks at abortion funds. Now, Dr. Zuckerwise, you specialize in high-risk pregnancy care. How has the new law affected your work? Yeah, it's um, affected pretty much every aspect of my work. I work with patients who have medical conditions themselves that make pregnancy a high-risk situation. Um, conditions where pregnancy could hasten um, them losing body function, could hasten deterioration of their health, of their disease, such as cancer, for example, um, as well as patients who are facing a diagnosis of a problem with their baby, um, fetal anomalies, genetic conditions, often that won't be compatible with them bringing home a healthy child in the end. Um, And the new laws have certainly affected both how patients come to me and ask about care options and also how myself and my partners can counsel them in terms of what realistic options we can provide them close to home and what services they may need to seek outside of their home community and their state and their support systems. Now, I understand that you cannot refer to them them to an abortion provider directly. And, you know, knowing that the nearest clinic is in Illinois, how have you had to change how you communicate with your patients? It's a really good question, Khalil. And I think there's a lot of um, uncertainty and I'll say fear among mm-hmm. the medical con- community about what we are and are not allowed to do. For example, um, when I have a patient who is at risk of dying or at risk of losing body function as a result of pregnancy, my medical training, my ethical promise to practice evidence-based, safe, and equitable medicine demands that I refer to abortion as a very reasonable and very realistic option for this patient. And fortunately, in the state of Tennessee, to my best understanding of the law, and I am not a lawyer, obviously, Um, My best understanding is that I'm still allowed to talk about all options with my patients. I am still allowed to express my medical opinion and share options for them. Um, I think what is tricky is that myself and a lot of my partners don't know where that freedom begins and where it ends. And so what I'm seeing is lapses in our clinical communication, lapses in our documentation, where one of us may have a conversation with a patient that is very medically appropriate, but may be too scared of legal ramifications to actually document it. Similarly, whereas in the past, I would pick up a phone and call a 
medical provider that I was referring a patient to so that I could expertly communicate the clinical situation, tell them everything they need to know to safely take care of the patient. I'm reluctant to call and make that referral. I'm reluctant to send an email. I'm reluctant to fax records because I don't know what role in someone obtaining an abortion, whether in or outside of my state, goes against the law. Um, And I think that this is something that's coming up for physicians taking care of pregnant people. We are a very risk-tolerant group, especially those of us who take care of the highest-risk pregnancies. Mm -hmm. But when I say we're risk-tolerant, I mean clinically. We also tend to be very heavy rule followers. And the thought of committing a crime, the thought of knowingly committing a crime against this law that has no exceptions is really scary and definitely gives most of us pause. What are the consequences of providers like yourself and your peers suffering and in from this fear of the law and not necessarily knowing which way to direct the people you're giving care to? And I think I'll answer that with in, with respect to two populations. And the first, of course, our commitment is to our patients. And my priority is always to do what's best and what's right for my patients. And this is really harming them. Often when a pregnancy is causing a life-threatening or potentially life-threatening complication, I need to act quickly. And I'm talking within minutes to hours in order to prevent a lot of harm and even death to patients. And so a delay to say, go up my chain of command or consult with a legal expert or review the law myself can be a matter of excellent and and essential patient care and delay that could potentially cause harm to my patients. So this is really harmful to our patients in that we are fearful and that can delay necessary care. And then looking at my provider community, myself and my fellow physicians who are taking care of pregnant people, we're scared, we're burnt out, and we're also um, feeling alone and feeling that the people who are supposed to protect us and our patients are criminalizing that which we do and are preventing us from feeling safe and secure in providing this really high level and important care to the parents of our community, to the people who grow our communities, to the people who bring children into this world. Um, And it's just a really, it's an unfortunate position to be put in because we do shoulder a lot of the burden when it comes to keeping our communities healthy and safe. And we take pride in that. You know, among the people you serve, who are the most affected by these changes? That's that's another really important question. And I just want to take this opportunity to thank Hannah again for her bravery and sharing her story and also um, commend her for her insight and what she shared earlier, which is that she was very lucky to have access to the abortion care she needed. Um, I have patients who don't have um, the uh, internet literacy to even know where to start looking for resources or for hotlines, who don't speak English Mm. to be able to listen to this program that you're so importantly putting on. Patients who don't have health insurance, patients who might not be in this country Um, documented, patients who don't have 
any ability to take a day off work and continue to provide for their family. Patients who have children with no safe option for childcare if they had to travel out of state and patients who don't even have a vehicle or the wherewithal to get travel expenses covered. Mm -hmm. Um, And these are the patients who also often have, may have lower health literacy, may have um, more medical complications. Um, And these are the ones that the patients who are of marginalized populations, the patients who um, are limited in their ability to access information and health care, we're going to be disproportionately affected by this law. You know, we got a tweet at This Is Nashville from Kelly McKernan. They write, quote, I'm terrified of an unplanned pregnancy. I survived an ectopic pregnancy in 2019, and I worry that I wouldn't in 2023, end quote. Dr. Zuckerweiss, as I mentioned, you know, you work with high-risk pregnancies. Should people like Kelly be worried because of these new laws? I think that everyone who loves people capable of becoming pregnant should be worried about these laws. I think as Hannah explained, she was doing everything right, quote, right, to prevent an unplanned pregnancy um, and still found herself pregnant. Um, To Kelly's question, anyone trying for a pregnancy is at risk of conceiving an ectopic or life-threatening pregnancy that will always be life-threatening to the patient and will never essentially result in a live birth. Hmm. Um, And when patients with a pregnancy, including ectopic, present for care in a state where every single act that ends a pregnancy is considered a felony, there will be delay in that care. And as I said before, that can be the difference between life and death. And so I'm really um, sensitive to that question. And in fact, I, I trained in a different region of the country that fortunately has preserved reproductive uh, freedom. Um, and I have former partners who have shared with me that they've advised their pregnant patients not to travel to Tennessee and states like ours with restrictive abortion laws mm. or criminalization of medicine during pregnancy because they don't know what their patients would face if a complication of pregnancy arose in a place like Tennessee. Mm. And I have to say, I agree with them. I would not feel completely safe being a pregnant person in Tennessee at this moment, even though I know that myself and my fellow physicians and all of my partners and everyone who cares for pregnant people, we are committed to keeping our patients safe and doing absolutely all that is necessary to do that. But we have to work within the confines of the law. And that's where the problem is. Mm. You know, there's a lot of confusion and fear surrounding abortion access. Robin, how do, how do you provide the people you, who are you helping with the right information so they can make the best decision for themselves? Yeah, so we definitely don't work alone. Like we have information on our website about, you know, here's your closest options in Tennessee. Here's how ACT can help you within those clinics. And we try to post, you know, information on social media. Um, But we're, I really want to uplift the work of Healthy and Free Tennessee. Um, Healthy and Free Tennessee is an organization that what I, what I try to say is they, they work, we treat the symptoms and they work on the root causes. So they work a lot in like legislation and policy and advocacy for abortion access in Tennessee. And, you know, they have also a lot of great resources on their websites. I definitely want to uplift choices as well. They have lots of great 
information through them. Just as Jen mentioned, they're so patient centric and they're really advocating for Tennessee patients, whether you're located close to them or just anywhere in the state of Tennessee. In your mind, what's the source of the confusion around the right information for abortion access? Abortion is just it's the it's the one topic most people don't want to touch, whether it's political or social. It's this big, divisive issue. And we can really like historically, we really only talk about it in extremes. Mm -hmm. And that was evident in the coverage of the SCOTUS leak and also, you know, leading up to Roe v. Wade being overturned. And I think there's just so much confusion about us. We operate, especially within the nonprofit world, we operate within that industry. And there's all kinds of different layers as far as how you want to help when it comes to abortion advocacy, where you want to donate your time and money. And I think just because it's this such a stigmatized topic, it's so hard to just kind of get clear cut information that doesn't feel like it's from one extreme or the other. Now. Jennifer, your organization Choices opened up at that new clinic in Illinois in October. What was behind that decision? Yeah, we, having provided abortion care for so long, uh, we knew as soon as the Supreme Court announced that they would hear the Dobbs case, that we were going to lose abortion within 12 months in the state of Tennessee. Uh, the trigger ban was already on the books, and this is really uh, what the anti-choice movement had been gearing up for for decades. And so I actually grew up in the Southern Illinois area and was very familiar with it. Uh, we had been thinking about potentially expanding. And when the Supreme Court announced the Dobbs case, I remember looking around at my executive team and saying, this is, this is going to be the end of abortion access in Tennessee, and we've got to do something about it. We as a team could not stomach the idea of not being able to provide such a critical healthcare service to our patients. And so we visited Carbondale for the first time actually in November of 21, uh, just a few weeks after the Supreme Court Dobbs announcement around the Dobbs case um, and worked to start to build a base of support and connect with the community. And so we moved just as quickly as we could. Uh, we were hoping to get the clinic open before the Dobbs decision, uh, but it turns out opening a medical facility has a number of steps in it as one might assume. And so. Uh, we were able to get open in October and our patient schedules have been full ever since. And so we are really trying to figure out how we can serve patients in the way that Choices wants to take care of people in a very people-centered way and try to serve as many people as we can. Um, and so that's what we're that's what we're working towards. If you're just tuning in, this is Nashville, and I'm your host, Khalil A. Colonna. We're talking this hour about the current abortion language landscape in Tennessee with Dr. Lisa Zuckerweis, Robin Baldridge, and Jennifer Pepper. Now, Robin, Abortion Care Tennessee helps people who don't have the resources to travel for an abortion. You know, the fund saw an increase in donations when the Dobbs decision was announced. I'm curious, how is the fund doing now? 
I mean, we're all really tired, hmm. but we're, we're doing really well. And um, we always call ACT a community funded organization. And especially during like peak quarantine, we were funded pretty much only by grant money that came from, you know, other avenues, other nonprofits from the National Network of Abortion Funds. And now with the increase in support and social media shares and everything that we've had since the Supreme Court leak, we really um, are really real deal community funded. We get so much support from the community, not just from the actual monetary donations we've received, but from how often we see people like plugging us on social media or, you know, forwarding our emails to someone and saying, I don't have the the money to donate to this right now, but I, maybe I can share it with someone who does. Mm -hmm. um, and so we're doing really well. It's basically it's catapulted us and our organization into uh, to a new level and has allowed us to have the funding for a lot of the initiatives that we we were mapping out for the next five years or so. We've been able to, to do a ton of fundraising events that have been really are becoming a cornerstone of our brand as far as giving people spaces to gather and, you know, be in community and find joy while also giving back to this cause that, you know, that was the biggest thing we heard, like feedback we heard from people, they were saying, I want to get involved, but how do I get involved? And so we wanted to start really small. It's like, here's a fundraising event that if you're free to attend, you know, that your $20 to get in the door is going to be really helpful. So giving people avenues to give back because we do know how confusing it is um, when you want to try and get involved, but you don't really know where to start. You know, Dr. Zuckerweiss, how do you, you know, advise patients about traveling for healthcare? Um, if it is, is, do you mean with respect to if it's safe to travel for healthcare or yeah, um, yeah. Like how, yeah, <laughs> that's a, that's a really good question. We get asked that all the time. Um, both inpatients seeking to travel for necessary healthcare and also those who want to enjoy travel during pregnancy. Um, and it is, it is safe to travel. Um, the caveat is that if a patient is experiencing a medical complication of pregnancy, such as a patient who breaks their water early in pregnancy, they are no longer safe to travel. They need to be in a hospital because they are at high risk of bleeding, of preterm labor, and of life-threatening infection that can come on at any time. And so a patient in whom that happens in the state of Tennessee, it will be the strong medical recommendation that they stay in the medical facility that diagnoses them with the problem for inpatient care and observation. Now, this patient has a high risk of life-threatening complication as well as fertility-threatening complication in that a severe hemorrhage or a severe infection would require a hysterectomy or uterine removal to treat. Mm. Um, and in the state of Tennessee currently, um, the, the legal reading of, of the law, or we don't know, we physicians don't know how sick a patient has to be for it to be legal to end the pregnancy before the heartbeat goes away. We don't know how sick a patient has to be. We don't know how heavy they have to be bleeding. We don't know how dire it has to be to provide the life-saving care. We prefer to do it in a preventative way before a patient is actively unwell. But with the current law, 
many of us feel that we can't safely do that or wonder. And so therein comes the delay. And so those patients, though, it would be unsafe to discharge them from direct medical care and say, now you have to drive several hours away or take an airplane to get somewhere due to your gestational age. It would be very unsafe for us to discharge them from our expert medical care to get the care that they so desperately need. And from what you're sharing, it makes follow-up care pretty much impossible, right? Yeah, and that's a really, a really good question. Um, Historically, when I had a patient who needed an abortion and I could make a referral, go through the appropriate channels, connect them with the proper experts to provide that type of care, those experts would then communicate back with me and send the records so that I could circle back with my patient once they've returned to Tennessee um, and to their home community so that we could talk about ways to prevent pregnancy at the moment, to plan for a future healthy pregnancy, to address all of their medical conditions, and also in the case that they had complications from the abortion. Now, I, I have to say abortions are very safe. Both medical abortion and surgical abortion is significantly safer for a person's health than a continued pregnancy. Mm -hmm. As I tell my patients, pregnancy never enhances our health, but sometimes it enhances our life. And so, but while abortion is very safe, there are potential complications. And I fear at the moment that patients feel nervous to admit if they've sought out-of-state care, to call us if they're having a problem, or to even include that as part of their medical history now that there's criminalization of this medical procedure. Now, Robin, I've got just under a minute left. You know, what are some of the messages about abortion care and access that you would like to correct? Oh, correct. Um, I think the biggest one, and I don't know that this specific messaging is necessarily out there, but I think especially with the, in the Supreme Court leak and during the fall of Roe, there was so much, there was this sort of like outrage cycle that lasted for, you know, maybe a week each time during those big news, like media cycles. And I think the biggest thing I want to uplift is that we are trying to sustain this work for a long time. As everyone on this call has mentioned, the, the situation is dire and it wasn't, wasn't just happening when the news was released. It was, that was just alerting everyone that this is going to be the reality going forward. Um, and so it's important for everyone to not just show up in those moments. It's important to find ways that you can sustain your efforts, sustain your energy. You know, we really try to uplift when it comes to monetary donations, recurring donations, like every month doing $10 a month versus, you know, $120 that you were going to, to donate to us. And I think the biggest misconception is that we uh, like funds like ours maybe operate just like Planned Parenthood does with like mm. large, large funding, tons of supporters that, you know, that nationwide branding. And we really are small grassroots funded by the community and we need support from everyone mm -hmm. going forward continuously and sustainably, not just in those moments when you're yeah. seeing and reading about abortion in the news. Mm -hmm. That is Robin Baldrich, president of Abortion Care for Tennessee. She was joined by Jennifer Pepper, president and CEO of Choices Center for Reproductive Health and maternal fetal medicine physician, Dr. Lisa Zuckerweis. I want to thank you all for being here today and thank you for the work you're doing.
We want to thank everyone who tuned in this hour. Tomorrow, the pandemic is still with us. And for many Tennesseans, so is long COVID. Just how are people coping? And is there any medical help for them? This is Nashville. is a production of WPLN News and Nashville Public Radio. We'll see you tomorrow, everybody. Be good to each other.